This is Top Floor, episode 28. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 28. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Michael Green got his start at New York City's Acker, Merrill and Condit, the oldest wine shop in the country and was wine and spirits consultant for Gourmet Magazine for 20 years. He has been featured in so many magazines and TV shows that honestly, we could spend this whole episode talking about them. But if today's show, Vanity Fair and Vogue ring any bells, stay tuned. Michael creates food, drink, and travel experiences for companies and has traveled all over the world delivering events with titles like A Matter of Time about how wines age and Vinotech about what happens when wine meets technology. Today, we are going to talk about how hospitality companies can take full advantage of their food and beverage offerings. But before we jump in, we have to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning marketing questions. If you'd like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Tejal. So Tejal asks, I've built up a good body of knowledge about hospitality and I would like to become a speaker and trainer. How should I market myself? This seems like the perfect question for you, Michael. What do you think? What should Tejal do to market themselves as a speaker and trainer in hospitality? Well, first off, Susan, they should get on your show. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. Good point. You know something? At the end of the day, when you want to do something and you're at a place where you don't think you can do it, Just start doing it. If you want to be a speaker, if you want to be an educator, start learning, start doing events in front of small curated audiences that are your friends and family and get feedback and just practice. I could not agree more. I think that Tejal needs to stop waiting for somebody to give them permission and just Go for it. You may have to do some free gigs to build up your resume, but after that, the sky's the limit. Agreed. So Michael, you got your start in the wine business at an age before most people can even spell wine. Tell us all about that. Correct. I started selling wine, Susan, illegally at the age of six. (laughs) Yes, at the age of six. I accompanied my dad to work at the oldest wine shop in America where he worked for 40 years. And it wasn't at six years old that I have passion about wine, but it's frankly just a passion about working with my dad. And I worked there ringing up the cash register at the age of six and into my early teens. And then I started learning about wine just through listening. 
And by the time I was 16 and 17, I was actually selling wine, presenting wine to customers. And I learned a lot about wine. I learned that all white burgundy is made from Chardonnay. I learned the five major grapes that are used to make the wines of Bordeaux. And frankly, just through listening and being open to hearing other people, I was really not knowing it really educated about the world of wine. And after I graduated college, I didn't frankly think that I would enter this profession, but I grabbed my passport and wanted to go back to some vineyard areas that I was traveling to during my years at college. And my dad said, Michael, you know something, in all the years you've been traveling through Europe, You've never been to visit a winemaker that you know. And long story short, I had this day with him that was, frankly, Susan, transformative. And while I didn't know the path, like your call-in question a few minutes ago, I knew that I wanted to spend my entire life connecting people with the power of food and drink. I love that. I have spent transformative times at wineries, but I don't know if they were quite the same. Susan, let me tell you something. This was like that Jerry Maguire moment. Those of your listeners who have seen that film, the first 10 minutes where his mind is racing so quickly, he didn't know how to put it all together. But that's what I knew. I didn't know what the journey would be, but I knew that I wanted to spend my entire life around food and drink. Well, part of that journey took you to Gourmet Magazine. You were the wine and spirits consultant there. Can you talk about some of the things that you did in that role? I'm really interested in knowing like what were some of the most decadent experiences? Well, sure. It started out when I was 26 years old and when Gourmet called me and tapped me to be their first ever wine and spirits consultant, I leapt at the chance, left the wine shop and started my own business. And the first event that I did for Gourmet was for one of our advertisers, British Airways. And they told me they wanted to do a general wine tasting. And I said, no, (laughs) British Airways is known for their great wines being served in first class. Let's replicate a meal you could have on British Airways and let's bring it into the Gourmet dining room. I was blessed for so many years to work with the executive chef of Gourmet, Sarah Moulton, celebrated chef, still has a show on PBS. And I've done some, frankly, throughout the years until sadly the magazine folded, some very decadent things. I take it you're not going to... Dig too deeply in the memory. No, (laughs) no, I'll happily dig too deep. They tapped me to say, Michael, we want you to create a culinary festival in the Caribbean for Barbados. Put it together for us and host it. And I did. Michael put together the perfect four days for our subscribers to come with you to Paris. And I did that. And there were some really amazing times with this iconic magazine, again, that sadly folded. 
So you are often described as a wine edutainer, meaning a combination of education with entertainment. You definitely took this role to another level when you debuted your first musical, Wine Lover, in 2007. Can you describe the show and tell us what inspired you to create it? Wine Lovers was very organic. My background is in the performing arts. I went to the high school performing arts. I've been teaching about wine and food for many years. And I had the idea on Valentine's Day about 20 years ago. What if we created a love story with two people who meet at a wine class while the audience gets to taste through six wines in this immersive experience led by a very animated teacher. Not completely autobiographical, <laughs> but kind of, sort of. Close enough. And uh, Close enough. And the show actually debuted in New York, then played in New Orleans, then back in New York. And before COVID began, it was playing on nine Norwegian cruise line ships. And I just found out that it's starting rehearsals once again. And if you pepper me with enough wine, which I don't have in front of me, <laughs> I might even sing a song for you. <laughs> that is amazing. That sounds like a really fun show where you get to taste wine at the same time. Yeah. And following the story of these two millennials who meet at a wine tasting class and sort of have a love connection it was really a joy. It was really a joy to write. And now it's a joy that many people are seeing this show. That is awesome. So, Michael, you have many quotable quotes. But the one... <laughs> You're scaring me. Did I use any expletives? You're scaring me. <laughs> well, the one that really made it clear that you and I were going to be friends is when yes. I heard you say on a video, let's take wine off its lofty pedestal and put it back in the glass where it belongs. So at the risk of sounding melodramatic, that quote gave me chills because it sort of instantly declares that you are going to remove any of the arbitrary distinctions of class or family origin, anything like that, and really make wine accessible. Where do you think that this egalitarian approach to wine came from? Well, I have said for many years that wine is just fermented grape juice with an attitude. <laughs> and I have to and I have to tell you a story. When I was in my early 20s, still working at the wine shop, Acker Maryland Condit, a gentleman would come in once a month and spend five thousand dollars once a month on expensive white burgundy. These prize wines from Merceau, from Corton Charlemagne and many other appellations as well. And he came in one Saturday morning and he and I became friendly. And I said to him, I said, by the way, Bob, I got an allocation of six bottles of a single vineyard Chardonnay from Sonoma. Can I sell you a bottle? And he said, this multimillionaire who knew so much about so many things, he said to me, Michael, I hate Chardonnay. Oh my God. 
Take a moment there. Susan, you get it. This man had been drinking. This has been drinking Chardonnay all his his life. And that's what he loves. So I had to educate him in a way that was not going to make him feel less than. Let him know that all white burgundy is made from Chardonnay. So here's what I can tell you in response to your comment. What I say, taking wine off its pedestal. It's generally the same 20 questions that are asked of me about wine, whether it's someone who just graduated from college or the CEO of a major company. People find wine intimidating. And I think part of that is because more choice is a feature that's not a benefit. And I frankly think that a lot of hospitality organizations do not take full advantage, do not take full advantage of how to leverage the power of wine to drive sales and drive the experience for the consumer. I know that you tackle that in your business and your business is all about creating food, drink, and travel experiences for companies. There are so many creative options on your website. I was wishing I could just like sign up and buy single person tickets to all of them. Um, It was hard for me to choose, but I'd love to hear you describe a couple of these for me. The one I think that has such a clever title is Corks and Torts. What is that about? So my work is creating food, drink, and travel experience for companies and trying to weave in their messaging. So one of my clients for many years was one of the top trademark and trade dress and intellectual property law firms in the world. And so I came to them and I said, what if we created a program called Corks and Torts, an evening of wine and litigation? (laughs) And I basically selected wines that were involved in some very high profile lawsuits. And we weave this into their brand messaging of what they wanted to achieve, which was to make their clients smarter in different intellectual property issues while we in wine themes. That is so clever and so creative. I'm also really interested in the one that's called Great Wines by Great Women, obviously. Well, Great Wine by Great Women has come out of really the need, in my opinion, in the corporate marketplace to celebrate women, to celebrate diversity, to celebrate people who have broken the glass ceiling and are really stretching, whether it's the wine world or the corporate world, in ways we had not imagined before. And so with Great Wines by Great Women, we focused on a lot of the women pioneers, old and new, who are really shining a light on not only not only making great wine, but they happen to be women. And let's celebrate that. That sounds like a really fun one. Oh, they all sound so good. You mentioned earlier and you've said before that hospitality companies, restaurants, hotels, etc., are leaving money on the table by not taking full advantage of their food and beverage offerings and and opportunities. Can you give me some examples of what you mean by that? Susan, your show is short. 
And this could be a two-week dialogue. But let me tell you a few things. Number one, most hospitality organizations truly do not understand the power of how a wine list can contribute to the selling of wine in a really powerful way. The way the wine list is organized, the font size, the types of selections that are offered to the customers, generally not a home run. Also, to invest in a wine program or frankly, a beverage program, you need to spend the time to train your staff. I actually, true, I just got a phone call two hours ago, two hours ago, from a gentleman who owns eight different boutique hotels in New York City. And he called me and we were chatting for a bit. And I said, why not explore for your guests a daily wine happy hour? Now, some other hotels are doing this, but let's do it better. Let's curate the wines. Let the guests understand what some really awesome wines can taste like while they are interacting with other guests and ultimately, ultimately, A, driving heads in beds and B, having people spend more money at the hotel restaurants. Because it's worth it to them. They're having fun. They're learning something, getting to know the other guests. I love that idea. Well, you know something, Susan, I've been called many things in my life and you called me something. <laughs> but my favorite my favorite thing that I've been called actually was several years ago by the DMA, the Direct Marketing Association. They called me. They said, Michael, you're not just a wine and food edutainer. You are an experience engineer. You are our experience engineer. You create, you tailor, you customize experiences to help us solve a problem and drive revenue. And I want to go back to what I was saying a moment to your point, Susan, is that a lot of hospitality companies are leaving money on the table. And there are a host of different ways that they can increase their bottom line through elevating the power of their food and beverage programs. Let's take a quick break here and we'll get back to my conversation with Michael Green. Coming up, Michael is going to share a very surprising wine tip and give us a sneak preview of his new play. Be right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference taking place March 22nd through 24th at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis, Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships and Hunter is where deals get done. For more information or to register, visit www.hunterconference.com. As you know, we like to make sure that our listeners come away from Top Floor with a couple of practical, very specific tips that they can try either in their businesses or in their day-to-day lives. I have to start with this one because it's, I think, my favorite tip of yours of all time. 
you, as I mentioned earlier, say a lot of very quotable things. You're but- <laughs> scaring me with all this buildup, Susan. What are you going to say? You, By the way, I've got to tell your listeners, you have done so much research on me. It's not like you're working for the FBI. Listen, so I have no idea what you're going to pull out of your hat. This podcast is a front for a full-on private investigation company. So <laughs> beware. So one of the most surprising things that I've heard you say is to tell people to put their wine in the blender. You have to explain yourself. (laughs) So I read about 30 years ago, this is not an urban myth by an economist who taught at Princeton University that not only by putting your wine in a decanter to let the wine stretch, if you want to hyper aerate your wine, hyper oxygenate your wine, you can put your wine in a blender. And I tried this at home many years ago, push puree for three minutes, let the foam subside, and the wine actually tastes more open, and it really saves you the time rather than putting the wine in a decanter. So if you've got snooty friends, blend your wine, then throw it in the decanter. (laughs) If you've got really awesome friends who don't mind shopping at Target or Kmart, (laughs) excuse me, Target, you can show up with a wine in the blender. But frankly, blending your wine, and I'm not talking about a 1961 Chateau Cheval Blanc, but it really can make a difference. Try it for yourself. It's really amazing. Definitely going to try that just for just to say that I did for sure. So we've been talking a lot about wine, but I know that you also have expertise and opinions about beer and spirits. I have talked about gin martinis with my guest, Nick Shelton back in episode 16. So our listeners already know that I'm a Hendrix martini up with a twist kind of a girl. Do you have a favorite spirit or a favorite cocktail that you like? My favorite cocktail is a Manhattan. My favorite cocktail is a Manhattan. Straight up with a maraschino cherry. But at the end of the day, we are really still, still in the renaissance of a cocktail culture. And you go to the great speakeasies in New York City or anywhere in the country, you can find a really well-made cocktail. And Susan, I have to tell you, Hendrix Martini, I'm there with you. Let's get the date on the books. (laughs) We're going to make it happen for sure. I also like Manhattans, but I'm a a go-to martini drinker for sure. Well, you know, what's very interesting is that often when most people ask for a martini, the bar chef, the bartender, the waiter, they assume it's a vodka martini when we all know that a classic martini is made with gin. Yes, I feel very snotty about that, but it is always gin for me, for sure. So something crazy has happened to my palate as I've gotten older. And I have a, I've heard some other friends say the same thing. When IPAs, so India Pale Ales, first started becoming really popular, I could not stand them. I thought they tasted like poison. They were way too bitter. And now... Circa 15 years later, I find myself only wanting to drink IPA. Do you have any theories about what happened to me? Is it just old age? It's not old age. I think that when you taste certain things in real time, not going back to your 15 years, 
Once you taste something like an IPA, that your first taste might appear bitter, then you get used to the bitterness and other things come out in the flavors and it changes. So your palate changes and the more complex the beer, the IPA, whatever your drinking is, you focus on other things beyond, oh my gosh, this is just bitter. Oh my gosh, this is just sweet. But getting back to my gourmet days, if I can, when I interviewed for the job, well, there really was no job, <laughs> but the assistant, the associate publisher said, Michael, what do you think about our wine and food coverage? And I frankly felt like someone punched me in the stomach. And I said, you know something? I really don't like it. You're still talking about white wine with fish and red wine with meat rather than understanding that when you bring wine and food together, they change. So Susan, going back to your beer, your IPA comments, imagine having that IPA with some really high cocoa content chocolate. Oh my gosh. Really? It's like like food porn. It's like (laughs) food porn. That is something I haven't tried before, but I swear this conversation is making me very thirsty. So what do you think about there? I see I see a trend of ready-to-drink beverages, canned cocktails, hard seltzers and cans. Um, any thoughts on, on that trend right now? Well, I think when a lot of people create these products, they're really trying to create a brand and make money, which is not inherently a bad thing. But when it comes to wine in a can or wine in screw caps or other beverages, I celebrate it. I think anything that is going to make the entry point into something alcoholic that people respond to and will enjoy, because it's something like 30% of all American households don't even own a corkscrew, truly. So if there's anything that is going to keep them from opening up that bottle of wine in a can or a screw cap wine, let's bring it on. Let's bring it on. That makes a lot of sense. What about the recent proliferation of non-alcoholic options. Seed lip is the one that comes to mind to me because it's meant to be a replacement gin, but there are a huge variety of so-called spirits that are non-alcoholic. Well, first off, seed lip holds a really near and dear place to my heart. When I'm doing wine experiences or beverage experiences with alcohol, and I'm notified that certain people don't drink alcohol for a host of different reasons, I recommend the seed lip. And I frankly think that there are very sophisticated, very sophisticated alternatives for people who choose not to drink alcoholic beverages. And they shouldn't be excluded from having experience They shouldn't just be given a Diet Coke. These most probably are people that that have palates, that want to be part of an experience just without alcohol. Makes a lot of sense. 
So now is the time when we pull out our crystal balls and try to predict the future. And as an official private investigator, I will hold on to this recording and bring it back to you in a year so that we can see if you were right or wrong. (laughs) What do you think are some emerging trends in the beverage business? Any like grape varietals that we should be thinking about or paying attention to, or I don't know, cool new techniques that we should consider? Sure. It doesn't sound terribly exciting. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. For certain people, it is exciting. Um, AR, artificial reality. You are seeing more and more wine labels. And if you download the app, Living Wine Labels, and you buy a wine like 19 Crimes, and you scan the label and it starts talking to you, a lot of wineries is the, in this competing marketplace are looking for ways to enhance the experience. You know, Susan, when you asked me for like my predictions, and I'll give you more in a moment, there has never been a better time to be a wine, to be a beverage, to be a food drinker. There are eater. There are so many people. There are so many people who are competing for your dollars that the marketplace is very cluttered. And frankly, frankly, it's becoming more and more difficult to make a bad bottle of wine and to bring it to the market. So if I had to predict some trends, more AI with wine labels, more wines with screw caps, people understanding the idea of supporting local. So if you, for example, are from Texas, well, Texas is the sixth largest wine producing state in the country. Drink wine from your backyard. Oh, Drink wow. wine from your back. Oh, yeah. I would oh, yeah. not have known that. But by the way, that goes back to really what a lot of your listeners might be listening for. It's sort of like if you're a hotel in Texas or Oregon or Virginia, celebrate that region. People are looking for really authentic experiences. And many times that can be a local farm to table wine or food or drink experience. Michael, what is next for you and what's next for your company? What's next for me this week is I'm doing a project for a major tech company called Vino Tech, where wine meets technology. I was talking about this a few moments earlier. Then I've got a meeting with a hotel chain to talk about how to bring more heads into beds by leveraging the power of food and drink. And I also have going into rehearsals in the next month or two, a prohibition coming of age play. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to hear. Can you give us a sneak preview or is it too soon? No, it's not too soon. It's called The Secret Manuscript. And the story follows the journey of an 18-year-old Italian-American kid from Brooklyn, Anthony DeValentine, who the show opens up and he is selling newspapers on the streets of Times Square. And it is his 18th birthday. And on this magical day, he gets mixed up with mobsters delivering hoot to some of the most celebrated speakeasies in New York City. 
And I'll leave it at that. Oh, but I, I will tell you, I will tell you that this one day transforms his life. I am very excited about this production and cannot wait to be able to see it. Okay, folks, before we tell Michael goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Michael, what's a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? There are so many. There are so many, but I'm going to tell you one. I want to edit, not write, edit a book called Eventful. Eventful, special event tragedies from the trenches. And here's my story. I showed up to Gray Cliff, one of the 10 largest wine cellar restaurants located in the Bahamas for an event that I had done for the same banking client for five years. And they sent me down there to do this event. And I showed up the morning of, and the client says, the Gazzarone family, Michele, it is so good to see you. And you're here a day early. And I said, no, I'm not. Our event is in eight hours. Oh, Michele, the new room hasn't been painted yet. We don't have the food. The purveyor comes tomorrow. And I said, everyone, grab an espresso. We are not pointing fingers, but we are pulling off an event in eight hours. And if the paint still smells of paint in the room, we will get some Febreze. And frankly, Susan, this was terrifying, terrifying. But ultimately, the event happened and it was magical. But imagine showing up to an event with a signed contract and the client gets the date wrong. Not good. I have had that. I don't even know if you know this about me, Michael, but I was an off-premise caterer. That was my very first grown-up job. And the number of similar tales that I could tell... In fact, in episode one, my first guest, who was also my sister, talked about a catering where the opposite happened. She was supposed to cater a wedding and got the date wrong and was called by the bride after the, the ceremony because she, my sister hadn't shown up for the reception. It's a hilarious story. Events are the craziest, the craziest in the entire world. We all have got event stories. We all have. And obviously, a lot of your listeners have event stories as well. But you know something? At the end of the day, you have to deliver and you somehow, somehow make it happen. But if I have time, I would like to edit this book, Event Full, Special Event Tragedies from the Trenches. And Susan, feel free to send in your stories. <laughs> I could probably write the whole thing and let you edit. <laughs> I'll buy you a publisher. <laughs> well, Michael Green, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners had as good a time as I did, and I really appreciate you riding with us to the top floor. Susan, thank you so much. You were really, you know, your listeners might not know this, but I get to see you while we're doing this interview and you are just glowing and sparkling and what you are doing for the hospitality community is just wonderful. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 28. 
Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 